welcome back to Can You Hear Us, where as always, we hope to highlight the experiences of women or femme of color within international development. Immense gratitude and thanks to the LSE Department of International Development for their support in hosting this space for this year. My name is Monica, my preferred pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm one of your co-hosts today. And hi, everyone. My name is Madeira. Pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am so happy to be back as one of your co-hosts today. To continue with our theme of race and academia, as you all are probably aware, it is academia that brought the Can You Hear Us team together. Monica, Kiana, Anna, and I are all MSc students within the Department of International Development at the LSE. While this year has been interesting due to both the pandemic and plethora crises, or should I say wake up calls within development and academic institutions, we decided that maybe there might be incoming international development students who might be interested in hearing what it's been like to be a student of color during a time where, to be quite frank, Inequality is rampant, marginalized identities are continuing to protest and unite together for change, and that there seems to be calls to recognizing difference and even transformative policies that have the potential to restructure the very foundations of development and the academy itself. Thus, today we decided to change up our episode for format from the usual interview to a Jada Pickett-Smith-inspired Red Table talk with all of us on the Can You Hear Us team. We hope to share our experiences, our own questions and thoughts about what the future holds for us and the development sector. The discussion will center around four topics, each introduced by a member and discussed collectively. First, the importance of action-oriented research and identity in international development. Second, engaging with the theoretical part of studying development. Third, gender and diversity in international development, with a nod at North-South and South-North development frameworks. And finally, the importance of female leadership. As always, the Can You Hear Us team acknowledges that we do not represent all women and femme of color and that we only speak from our own experiences and perspectives. But we are always striving to be as inclusive as possible to all women and femme of color. Moreover, for this episode, we, the team, do not reflect any of our current and past institutions or organizations, as these are solely our own opinions. Thanks, Monica. So just before we start, Anna, Kiana, do you want to say hi? Hello, it's Anna here. And hello, it's Kiana. All right, I think we are ready. So without further ado, Anna, you've got the floor to start us off. Thanks, Madeira. Okay, so the topic I would like to bring to the table today is that of action-oriented research and positionality and identity. So I came up with this by reading Sense and Solidarity by Jan Dress. He's mm. an economist working in India and he has worked with Martia Sen. And by the way, he used to teach at the LSE. So I came to know this book thanks to Dr. Zahinkar who mentioned it in a lecture of the Poverty Course. So thank you, Dr. Carr. It's a wonderful reading. In this book, Dress argues in favor of what he calls research for action, which is research that aims to contribute to practical change, not only by informing policy, but also as a democratic activity in a wider sense, encompassing multiple means such as activism and legal action. 
Actually, I think he's the best illustration of this because he's involved in activism for the right to food in India, apart from being an academic. He also talks about the ways in which personal experience, identity and action, say activism or volunteering, can inform knowledge production in very meaningful ways. First, because it grounds the researcher in reality, if you have a heart, he says, pain and helplessness will move you like no statistical evidence is likely to. So this kind of involvement, I think, gives researchers or students or practitioners like augmented glasses to look at problems and to achieve another degree of understanding. And it's worth noting that involvement doesn't need to compromise academic quality or objectivity. Instead, it could further motivate scientific rigor. Second, identity and values put evidence into perspective. And this is especially important when it comes to practice because we are always implementing policies that impact people who experience the world in very different ways. And we cannot be disconnected from that. Therefore, the importance for diversity, especially in this field, be it gender, geographical, cultural, etc. So we all know that the best way to look at, a, to look at an object is to do it from different angles and the same and especially with the development issues and i think that having different identities allows that privilege so i wanted to ask you guys a bit about your motivations because i also think that identities and personal experience also shape our motivations for being here or for deciding over development or as our professional path so if you would like to share a bit about what your motivations are or were uh, when you decided over this program. Really good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> so I, I became curious about this uh, when I was like reflecting in some experiences this past year. And I think that we have also talked about this among ourselves, uh, right? And I was thinking about the way in which the main dimensions of who I am shaped my experience uh, studying this program, which I am sure was very different from someone else's. And I'm not, not just talking about being from a specific country, a middle-income country, but also being a woman and having a specific academic background. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that shape our experience in the classroom and how we relate and how we think about development. I don't know if you would like to share, like if you have experienced anything similar. Sure, I can start with this. So I think for me, actually, it started more at home because I grew up in a Middle Eastern family. So obviously we all know the Middle East and development are very interrelated and talked about topics. So it was just kind of something that was always at the dinner table for me. And I never really had the chance to study it even though I did political science as my undergrad. And then I had the chance to work at a development institution. And I was a mix of enchanted and disillusioned by the work that I was I was seeing going on. And so I was just more curious, I think. I think it's been a lot of curiosity and personal interest that has brought me into this program. What about everyone else? 
I mean, I, I think I have similar to Kiana, um, only a little slightly different. Um, when I was an undergrad, I did a lot with religion and culture. So I was very humanities based. And I've always had a part of myself that was really felt like they wanted to be in some sort of public service. And I also have always been in situations where I was working within, um, I mean, even within my own family as being someone that is mixed, um, working within these cross-cultural sort of scenarios where you're trying to make decisions and compromises and even like the best results for both parties involved. And that could have just been at the dinner table deciding what to eat. And then on a more like uh, elevated level of like, you know, how myself as being a black woman and a native woman, how that translates into the kind of work that I would like to do, especially someone that has been privileged to go to school and to be a part of a university that is so um, big and wide, especially in the US. And I decided to join the Peace Corps, which I do want to make a disclaimer that I do not um, reflect the complete ideas of the Peace Corps, that they are their own separate agency, and I'm only talking about my own experiences. And I lived in Malawi for three years, working on various programs dealing with education and health, and I just kind of realized how important it was, like what you're saying, to have representation um, especially from those that have, maybe I didn't necessarily have the same experiences as those that I was working with, but I did understand how poverty and my identity as a woman, and especially as a woman that is not white, that can translate into the kind of ways that people treat me, and as well as the way that the government policy decides to interact with myself. And so I made a connection with the, the people that I was working with and my colleagues that I associated with. And so my motivation truly became kind of anger, I'll be honest, like that I just didn't really think that what was actually being done was right. And I uh, felt the need that I needed to kind of help with intervening. Um, I don't know if that's just like my own privilege talking and I don't want to come off of, from a place of having an ego, but I just was angry that there were those that were trying to speak for those that definitely had the voice that could uplift themselves. So that's why I kind of leaned into development work. Yeah, it's funny, like echoing the whole dinner table analogy, I think one was pretty similar, but it was also different because it was the fact that I grew up within the development sphere. And so I grew up half and half in the global south and then moved to the global north. And so that's, kind of like when I saw that, you know, the development and maybe the world I had like known growing up wasn't normal, <laughs> that there were other professions, that there were other things. Not everyone was in the same circle talking about the same issues, which were like hunger and poverty and gender equity. Those were dinner table conversations because of the fear I was in. And so I kind of landed into it by default because it interested me growing up, like having all these conversations. And then I was confused when I moved to the global north why no one was having these conversations which also speaks maybe to the change of environment type of people etc also it was a lot less diverse and eth ethnically gender everything and so I kind of knew I wanted to do development like I geared my undergrad towards development and I <laughs> geared my postgrad towards development so I guess in that sense my 
positionality might not come so much from nature, but more from like nurture and the environment. And that's what maybe has driven me to like the same point that Kiana and Mujira have mentioned, which is a slight indignation when you do see the differences or when you do see the injustices within the system, but also between the system and everyone else. Well, thanks guys. This is like super interesting. And I think it illust- illustrates how diverse we are, like even among ourselves. I was just wondering like, what do you think about this notion of solidarity or yeah, positionality in which you have a certain involvement with with development issues or a specific population, for example, how do you think that influences the way you think about it or the way you make questions about it or inquire like in a, in a more scientific way? It's a hard question because I think the biggest thing to kind of de- deconstruct this year for me personally is how to like separate the indignation with like savior behavior and also to keep it objective like you've just mentioned to keep it like maybe research focused or objective to a certain degree it doesn't matter how much you care or how much you want to be involved there's always a, a line and I think it's very important to acknowledge that line and it changes with different contexts it might change with the people you're working the the, the context as in country cultural context you're working in because development is super multidisciplinary and very international in the sense that you're working all over the globe and so I think it's really what I've learned is that it's really important to keep that in mind yeah I don't know if that answers the question very well yeah, I totally agree with Monica. I think that I think that there is such a fine line from becoming, you know, we always talk about white saviors and what that looks like. But I think it's really important to recognize that we as people of color that are in international development can also be white saviors in the way that we try to describe stuff. And I think you put it very perfectly there. And that's exactly where I am as well is like, what line do we cross? When as researchers, as practitioners, even deciding to be consulting and what does consultant mean, especially when we're going into these spaces where, uh, to be honest, a lot of the times we are just doing our own work to like research, but we've never had the lived experience. And, you know, if there is somebody that has had that lived experience, shouldn't they also be probably even more suited for the position that we are trying to gather? So I think it's really hard to make that distinction. And then also just thinking of it as just simply a job, right? Like, we all want an occupation and like we all deserve to work and we have, you know, we have that own obligation to ourselves. And can we look at development as this like moral ground of making a difference? Is that the right way to look at it? Or should we really be looking at it as like it is a job that we're doing certain specific objectives and at the, at the end of the day, we're reaching something that's greater, but how we interact in that space is always something that confounds me and it should be. I feel like we should be asking that question all the time. Yes, I agree. I agree with what you both said. I was thinking, like, for me, I mean, I am aware of that line between being professional and scientific and having, like, a more personal relation to, to what we are studying or addressing. But I also think that experiences and this personal involvement could also be, like, a trigger for for very like unique work or research. Um, I think it 
it actually can trigger rigorous and scientific approaches and it's like an undertone that that adds a lot of value as well no, definitely i think if you care the driving force is always gonna be there if that makes sense by default which is kind of maybe the inherent beauty of being intertwined or positioned within development and i think that's also what makes development studies so unique because no matter how you try to make it as scientific and as rigorous as possible, it's still a very, very personal topic with very personal repercussions. So I think like everyone was saying, very important conversation we're probably gonna have with ourselves and with our colleagues for a very long time. Yeah, totally agree. And I think it also just comes down to how we define development, which is something that we've been talking about in classes and in our own seminars at LSE and like, you know, kind of dealing within our own thoughts, what it means and what, how, do, how should we define it? And even if we need something like that at all, like, you know, I think that that's really important. And I'm not quite sure if it's been, I feel like that's a very recent idea is questioning what development actually means. And I think that that will continue through our generation and our own career paths and everyone that follows us from now at this point. Cool, so maybe we can get to the next topic on our roster. As LSE students with dissertation writing underway, I think all of us can agree that engaging with theories has been an integral part of our educations. Personally, as I've been reflecting on the type of career I want in the future, I've also been thinking about how these theories are going to be influencing and shaping the way that I work. More complicated to this all is the fact that a lot of these development theories that we've been exposed to were authored by white, Western, and male voices. Moreover, a lot of those theories have also been debunked, quote unquote, because of counter evidence or a lack of conclusive evidence, especially the theories from the 70s and 80s, like, for example, the Harrow Damar model of development or the more neoclassical solo model that falsely predicted convergence in terms of development. And obviously, this conversation is related to the decolonizing academia episode we had, but it's also just something that I don't think we can really escape in development studies when we bring it up as a topic at all, especially considering how the field itself and like Madeira was saying, how we define it is relatively new because it's from this post-war reconstruction era where the main voices were institutions like the OECD and the World Bank that are obviously rooted in the Western world with Western intentions. All of that is to say, I'm curious, maybe first off, how everyone on the team has maybe thought about theories um, from this past year in their education, maybe how it's been different or similar to different topics that they've studied in the past in different academic spaces. I was, it's such a, <laughs> intense question in a way. I feel like, how does it compare to other experiences in theory? I think in my case, it's quite sad. It's been more diverse, but I do recognize it is not as diverse as I would like it to be. But that is also because from my previous previous experience in theory, it's been quite limited in general. I also did like two very different degrees. So theories vary a lot in both. And I would say that the nice thing about development is that the theories are very multidisciplinary. So you just quoted like an economic model, but there are also theories that stem from 
from anthropology and other things such as the one Anna mentioned. And so, yeah, I feel like there's still a long way to go, but compared to my previous experience, this is an upgrade. <laughs> okay, I would like to, <laughs> to say that my knowledge is like very fragmented. I don't really have like a, a body of theory that I have studied like widely because my undergrad was also very, very fragmented. I, I did communications and there is, I mean, th there are communication theories that are basic, but there is not like a, a corpus. But I think it's also a bit sort of a, a relief to know that increasingly more like development scholars and development professionals are being like more coming from more diverse um, scientific backgrounds and from a lot of different disciplines. So for example, we, we don't have only economists that has done like his undergrad, master and PhD in economics, but, but also we have undergrad in economics, master in political science and PhD in international development, which is like a puzzle of everything. So I think that is a, an interesting thing and, and a, a bit of a relief for me. And for example, even with scholars that are more like, more like renamed, such as Amartya Sen, who is an economist, but he also does like a lot of philosophy and theories of justice. And, I, and for me, that is very, very interesting and very valuable. Yeah, I, I think I had a similar, well, I think I had a very similar experience to Anna, except for I know for a fact that I'm deeply rooted in kind of interpretivist constructions of knowledge, and I'm very qualitative focused, and I think that that has a lot to do with my undergrad and the type of theoretical perspectives and paradigms that I was placed in. And I have had a really hard time knocking those out, especially in this program. And I've noticed that a lot of my colleagues have it in some ways that those that are from a more economic background are very structured, that there is like a lot of black and white. And I have nothing against evidence. What I do have against it, which I think that a lot of the theories kind of show is the fact that there is some, some knowledge production that is not considered important, nor as helpful, or even right. And it's not being used in development, which is really interesting to me, because we are dealing with such a different, we're dealing with so many different worldviews and the fact that there seems to be some sort of centered block in some ways, regardless of it being multidisciplinary of how things should be handled is something I question a lot and I think will continue to be questioned. And so my, my time in LSE has been really interesting because it's actually been great to be in those spaces where there are those that are very quantitative and constructivist and really have a deep sense of, I don't want to say that like this is like A to B, but it's very empirical. And that's something that I really value because there are some great things that come out of empirical work. And I think that the best thing about development itself is that they kind of put those two together now. It's becoming more common that you have to have one or the other, you can't have just one of them to decide how to do a specific intervention or 
work on a specific goal, there needs to be a balance. And that's something that I think is really important. Great. I agree with everyone, especially I think when Monica, you mentioned that the discipline is really interdisciplinary. I think that is really what makes this such a hard to answer question because economics, anthropology, I mean, those two alone are so, they, they disagree on so many topics. So it's, it's really hard to untangle everything. But speaking more about um, maybe discipline versus practicality when it comes to studying development, I've also been thinking a lot about this utopic version of our program where it's purely practical, we're not learning about theories of the past, um, and I couldn't really think of anything, to be honest. Um, even reflecting on internships I've had in the past in this space, I've always kind of felt distant from the real work of development. But Madeira, you did mention your time in Malawi, and that sounds like some very hands-on practical experience. So maybe do you want to share about what that space shift has been like going from academia, I mean, sorry, going from more practical space to a more academic development space? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I will say that I have only, compared to what I would consider those that are development professionals, I have like barely tips the iceberg on what that means and especially with field work. I think that the connections I have made, maybe, you know, if I could go back in time and do this program, you know, now, like before I went to Malawi and I could tell you like how I, they connected, I'm sure I would see some more similarities. I will say that, you know, when I was, learning more about the, I mean, a great example is like the macro micro paradox and the way that things get done on the micro level um, in quotes, uh, but on the macro, it doesn't actually translate to the indicators or the objectives that a organization, whether it be the World Bank, the OECD, or even just an NGO, what they actually want on the top. So my experience has been that that is very true. <laughs> and that is definitely an issue that's ideological and I think is truly becoming more and more of a topic now, not during my actual experience in Malawi. I think also there's a lot more, I never felt quite distant, but I will say that I, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but when I first was learning about development, I was not thinking about economics at all. Like I was not thinking about money, which maybe that's just me being kind of ignorant and naive, but I think it also just takes the claim that there are so many sectors that are considered international development, but like you would never see them they do in, in some essence translate back to the way that a country has economically developed. And I would have never made that connection if it wasn't for this course. And it definitely makes more sense when we're talking about limited resources and the way that policies operate, policymakers operate, and also um, the way that decisions are made. But I, I do feel sometimes that there is a big distance between theoretical versus like what's actually happening on the ground. And Monica, Anna, what about you? What kind of space do you imagine yourselves working in in the future in terms of development, a more academic, theoretical one, more practical mix, neither? I think personally, I'm very pro the practical side, but I 
have realized, especially this year, that you can't have the practical without a bit of theoretical. So I chose this master's because I thought it was going to be a lot more practical than it was. And um, it had like the consultancy project integrated and all of that. And to a certain degree, I wasn't expecting it to be as academic as other masters I had applied to, which I knew were very research-based. So that was a very fun learning, <laughs> learning curve <laughs> personally. But it's also really helped me to see that as much as I am interested in the theory and I really see the value in it, I wouldn't pursue it directly because I think that there is enormous value to having practical experience first. I think it's the reason why I personally am very pro grassroots movements and all of these things is I think the more you involve the people that are directly impacted with the development schemes that are being put in place by bigger organizations or like other people, other individuals, the more efficient it's gonna be because it's serving them. And so I think for you to know as well as an outsider to a certain degree, even if you're super invested and your positionality makes you be of the same culture or the same ethnicity or from the same country, you still have to know that for other reasons, you might still be an outsider and maybe that practical experience will help you see why and maybe bridge the differences a bit better for future than theoretical work or more policy-based work. So for me, I only know that I want to continue learning about development, whatever that means. <laughs> this program really showed me that my motivations are very aligned with the sector and but also it, it showed me everything I don't know and everything that I need to learn and so it's exciting and overwhelming as well. I also sort of developed like a intellectual curiosity for this. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I'm a bit more in the in the knowledge side of, of things. I, I like research. I, I love doing like assignments and <laughs> like I really like it. <laughs> I really like writing and reading and keep learning. But I also like the the policy side of it, like how do we translate all of this research, all of these findings, knowledge into practical interventions or yeah public policy and how and what is the best and more integral way of doing so and the most respectful way of doing so just in light of what I just talked about earlier and so my ideal job would be something like in between research and policy but yeah definitely I, I would like to continue learning about this and I would look for a job that involves learning and learning as well as as designing policy or informing policy. Yeah, and I mean, to segue in terms of looking at development, because you've made a really good point that I think I agree with is how much recognizing how much power policy in particular de dealing within the sphere of development has on political interests and the way it operates, even in diplomacy and even the economic history, even the history itself of the countries being constructed, there's just a lot that it covers. And I think that that's something really to think about and especially within whatever sphere we decide to be a part of. Speaking of policy, I'm sure you guys already know, but we're actually a little more than halfway through 2021, believe it or not. And that means that there's actually less than 10 years for the United Nations members to reach the goal set out in what is formally known as Agenda 2030. 
but we know as the sustainable development goals or more informally, especially in classes, the SDGs. In an article written by Professor Sakika Fukuda Parr at the New School in New York City, the 17 goals of the SDGs are a bit criticized for being lofty or unattainable. We're actually an improvement from the Millennium Development Goals that were set out in 2000. And just for example, while the SDGs cover this multidisciplinary nature of development, um, which goes right back to what we were talking about of how we could define what development means, but there's definitely consensus that purely economic development can't be the only thing that development covers. It should also include things that deal with health, education, and even quality of life in terms of equality. They also were the first global agenda that included not only countries formerly known as being like low or middle income or in quotes, the global South um, or even developing, but they actually included everybody that was considered developed and also wealthy. This is actually the first time I think that this was acknowledged especially in development. And it made that the issue of development is not just for the global South, so to say, but also the global North, that there's actually a lot to work to do in all of these spaces, including if we're going to include these ideas that kind of relate to Amartya Sen idea of capabilities and having freedom. And this is even furthered by COVID-19 and it's exasperates the injustices like gender-based violence, food insecurity, I mean, forced displacement, bred from the large amount of inequality caused by the global economic system adopted by the world. And across the board, the conversation and the, the definition of who should be developing or developed, who is receiving or giving aid, and what development should look like and how the public has a say in how a country handles their development spheres is constantly a topic of conversation. And some of us may identify as being from the global South. And I know for myself, I am part of a community or communities where that are within the global North that actually have to deal with the brunt of the injustices that are caused by the issues that are considered development issues. I guess my question is, what do you think the future holds for the development sector as not just being simply an issue that is solved by the North to the South, but potentially a call for these universal standards that must be met by all countries, regardless of wealth? I guess, is that even possible? Like, can we even actually have that kind of agenda? And like, what do we need to even be a part of that? So I think it's absolutely possible. First, because even within the most orthodox views concerned with growth and economic development, we know that economic development, um, yes, the, the purely monetary aspect is only a means for something else, for meeting basic standards of a dignified life. But I think that's why Sen's approach is very clever and very useful because it helps us go beyond this um, duality of North-South it can help us see that there are Norths and Souths within every country. For example, racism in the US, you, you know this, it's a major expression of backwardness that limits people's freedom even more than in other less wealthy countries. So I think this view illuminates the fact that deprivation is always like an absolute and yeah, and, and it can happen even in, in well-developed countries. I was going to just say that I think the conversation needs to also involve uh, like all the countries, regardless of wealth. And I think that has 
a lot to do with us needing to shift maybe our, our notion of what development is and what where we assign value in these conversations because I think when we're using these very standard and in my opinion quite outdated metrics like GDP per capita etc we're missing out on a lot of different metrics that I think would bring in different kinds of stakeholders and so I think it's it's necessary work to bring everyone into the into the table. What about you, Monica? Yeah, I think, first of all, like I said before, I think you really have to involve the people that are going to be directly impacted by whatever decision you make, development otherwise. <laughs> and then what Anna said about, you know, there's North and South within countries, in the North within countries, in the South, and acknowledging those as well is incredibly important. I think that that was the biggest realization for the global north when they started making the agendas at the beginning of the millennium but they realized that they had to acknowledge that gender and poverty and nutrition all of these were also issues that happened in the global north and so it brings the question again of who develops and what is development which is i think what we keep saying in this conversation in general so you have to kind of reassess it like anna said at the beginning from all angles to really know what you're going up against in general or to find the like best fit solution, <laughs> if you will. And I think that um, j just to make a point in this all angles um, thing, I think that multidisciplinarity is a very valuable way in which we can achieve this. Um, multidisciplinarity brings another kind of perspective that is scientific and also identity and experience, personal experience, complement this other perspective that can be more practical and that is highly like highly instrumental for practical application as well. I think maybe my definition of multidisciplinary is a little bit different, but I think it also it's important to acknowledge that like some of what is considered multidisciplinary might have to fit a specific box that is considered not necessarily empirical, but it might not fit what a, what the Western kind of world considers as scientific or actually worthy of creating knowledge. And I think it I think it more comes down to recognizing that there are many different routes and many different ways and there are many different definitions of what development means. But at the end of the day, everyone is trying to move towards having a more peaceful, equitable, egalitarian world and uh, that everyone can live the way that they want to live and people can enjoy the freedoms that they have. And whether that means that we need to completely shift the way that academics, research, practice actually operates within those systems is something that I think is really important, especially when we're talking about global north to south, because this conversation goes not only from like practice, but this is also like academically. We are implicated as LSE students that are coming from very Western you know, institutions that is collaborating on international development. We're implicated because London used to be one of the most imperial empires of the world in terms of handling different identities and especially those that didn't look or work the same way. And I, I think that it's really important to note because of that, 
we need to also recognize that there might be those that might not have the same sort of education background, but actually have the actual experience and the means to do the same kind of work that we can do, regardless of whether we're working in or not. Not what I was going to say before, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that even within this group of four people, I think our pre-existing ideas and notions of theories and development are still Western constructed because we all had pretty much Western educations and we are just four people as well. We have very different experiences, but in that way, our perspectives are coming from one specific direction, whether or not we were in, in London this year doing development, it would have amalgamated to similar things since like, you know, the past has been pretty much in the same optics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Echoing again, everything and wrapping up with female representation and leadership. Um, we can arguably say that the importance of female representation and leadership is one of the more important aspects of gender equity in both the personal and professional spheres today, especially since there's only 22 countries that have had women as heads of state compared to 119, 199 countries that have not. And these are statistics from UN Women. Also, there's a working paper by Ginther that states how women may be the majority in academia, but are the minority in higher ranks within academia. And this reflects like LSE data from 2017, which shows that women outrank men by 11% in taught postgraduate positions, which is what we're doing today. Whereas men outrank women in postgraduate research by 2%. The curious thing about international development, even though it's multidisciplinary, like we've said, is that it's a lot less male dominated than other sectors such as engineering or maybe even economics. You don't have to go into STEM to find male dominated sectors. And we can also testify this from our current cohort. <laughs> I would also like to tie this into pos positionality and using, as we've all quoted, Amartya Sen's theories on perceived capabilities by gender. And wanted to ask if international development adheres to these perceived values ascribed to women and what do you all think about it? I mean, I think that this is a current topic of discussion now. And I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, the SDGs. I mean, the fact that gender equality is one of the, the 17 goals um, and that it has its own indicators and objectives to kind of steer the world towards that is like really, it's a really big deal. And I think it's something that we take for granted just because we're kind of in a state where we, we should already be reaching these goals. And I think it can kind of feel a little bit, uh, not the word's not debilitating, but it just is, can be disempowering when you're hearing about the way that the world is operating in kind of these backward reactionary kind of situations where we're kind of going against the progress that we've made. And so there's like one aspect of that where I think is really telling and is, is going to constantly be a converse, topic of conversation, the value of our voice in these matters, I just think is really important. And I mean, I also will say that there's a lot to deal with poverty in women and how they're directly related within the issue of poverty. And that, you know, there needs to be a lot of discussions about reaching the needs of impoverished women because they make up the majority of those that are impoverished. Maybe I'm a little bit critical, but sometimes the unpaid labor that's been done by women is not really being talked about. And I think it needs to be. 
and especially during the COVID pandemic. And um, I think that that is something that international development really needs to talk about more. And I'm actually kind of surprised they've kind of kept it to the side because really at the end of the day, there's a lot of unpaid labor that's being done by women that keeps the system afloat. And if it wasn't for that, there would be probably a lot more development for women in terms of empowering and in education, but there's not because the system relies on that. I definitely agree, especially even hearing the words unpaid labor just triggers me because I've seen so many job opportunities in development that are just all unpaid work for six set like almost to a year years worth of work at these huge organizations that definitely have the money and I don't think that is a coincidence that development is mostly a female centric space and is also not rewarded. Um, as much as maybe some more male-dominated spaces. And I agree with you. I think it's very weird that this whole time it hasn't come up in our academic spaces. Maybe like this isn't the space to be talking about it, but considering most of us are pursuing these kind of careers, I think it's quite concerning. And it's very classist too. Like it's, it's very obviously classist that these kind of organizations are trying to bring in a very specific kind of person that has the privilege to undergo these kind of unpaid work opportunities in some of the most expensive cities to live in in the world. So, yes, I absolutely agree with with both of you. As well, I I think that as you were saying, Monica, on, on positionality, I think there is also an issue here because I think there is like a missing part in maybe in development theory, we are missing women's voices and in the way that we produce evidence. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that there's a lot of research that's coming out about inclusion versus outcomes. And, you know, I think it's really important that we include women in all of these conversations, but we should also recognize that the conditions to allow women are just as important um, in terms of them becoming actual leaders that actually pursue goals that are equitable and inclusive. And I think that happens a lot is that, and so I think that there's like a, again, it becomes this balancing act of making sure that we have all of this leadership, but also that we have the leadership that has the ability to actually pursue the equity in a way that actually can help women become um, whether it be more productive or just have a better quality of life, let's be honest. And I think also in terms of who is setting the agendas, I think also there needs to be some discussion on who are the leaders of these agenda setting institutions, like just off the top of my head, World Health Organization, OECD, led by men. So just another thing to think about. Yeah, definitely. I also think what Madeira pointed out is like there's a difference between representation and inclusivity and also how deep they go, each of them. And thinking back to past conversations that we've had on the podcast with our guests, a lot of them have alluded to the fact that mentorship is extremely important within female networks, especially women of color, especially, you know, again, in the in the sphere of international development. And so I wanted to ask you all, like, what do you think? Is it a reality? Have you had experience with mentoring or being a mentee? How has it helped? I know for me that I think that's something that should be changing, hopefully, 
or will be changing soon if we all decide to pursue careers in international development is actually having women that look like us be in international development spaces as mentors. Just having a, a female mentor to look up to is just super important and it can help with not just like deciphering where you feel like you fit in whatever sector you want to work in, but I think that in terms of having someone that shows you an example of how you want to leave your life is really important. It would be really nice to have more people that look like me doing this work and actually to have someone to talk to about it, because I think that that's where we were talking about with Anna about representation and diversity of experience. That's where it really comes down to is that if you don't have the foundation and the support, it can be difficult to stay in the game. And I think that's been one of my favorite parts of this podcast is being able to talk to people that look like us in the development space. But yeah, I think my personal experience with mentoring, I've I've really tried to find a POC woman to mentor, be mentored by, but I even signed up for this mentoring thing through the school and I was signed, assigned to a non-POC woman. So I was like, interesting, there seems to be a lack of supply. <laughs> but I think regardless, until we reach that point, mentoring is still mentoring. And even if there are non-POC, non-woman um, identifying allies, that's really all that we can ask for at this point. So I think mentorship is integral to to building our professional or academic lives even. Yeah, definitely. I also think that it's crucial to have like these role models. Yeah, it's really helpful to to see and to talk to other women of color that are being successful in their professional lives, especially in this sector, um, because it gives us like the sense that there's a way through many structures that are disencouraging sometimes and this can serve increase our sense of agency like vis-a-vis -vis these structures and I think one day we the four of us can become like this kind of, of persons right that, that are eager to to give advice I was gonna say also beyond mentorship, I think having POC women in this space is integral because it provides kind of like a venting space that I've also realized through Roco is so important. It's been so nice just having a space of women who maybe not perfectly experience everything like you, but more or less have certain impressions that I feel like only women of color can can relate to, especially when navigating topics or um, spaces that are sensitive to us. So that I think would also be a big part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, peer mentors too. This peer mentorship is just as important as just having someone above you that you can look up to as well. Yeah, this segues perfectly into the last point, which was five major behavioral differences from behavioral science and business literature about women leaders and negotiators. And one of the points is the fact that women prefer deeper and smaller networks to men who have broader and shallower networks. So networking is like, it's a functional thing and it happens at work every day. Whereas women prioritize relationship building, which I think is what I've heard from the 
the discussion around mentoring, it's vital. It's like you said, it's integral that women of color are in the sphere, first of all, but it's also integral that we all get, you know, we all see each other and get to know each other to a certain extent to have a safe space to be able to talk about certain things, which is really interesting. But <laughs> going on to the last point then, the five major behavioral differences between men and women leaders that the literature has pointed out is first ambition. So apparently women tend to be more conceding during negotiations and they have slightly lower levels of ambitions. Women, second, women have a more indirect and accommodating communication style, whereas men have a more direct and less conceding communication style essentially. Um, third process, like processing information, whereas women tend to look at the bigger picture and have a more integrative um, point of view, men are more item specific. And then finally, the last two are relationship developments where women prioritize win-win situations, notably in negotiations, and men don't. <laughs> they're okay with a win-lose situation, but that is not, these are just general trends. They're not the rule. And then finally, the networking, which I just mentioned. And I just wanted to ask, how do you think that this affects us as women of color to be able to maybe find a path to leadership roles or get to leadership roles in general? And what would happen once we're there, especially in the sector of international development, which is essentially what this entire conversation has been revolved around? I mean, there is some extent to me, I mean, these are really interesting. The first thought that I thought of was how many of these behavioral differences are conditioned by our norms and the institutions that like allow us. Like the first one, ambition, meaning that we have slightly lower, is that because we actually don't have the full ambition or is it because we're never really given the opportunity because we always have to concede our own issues, whether it be like us having children that comes on us, like us being able to be in spaces that might not be um, just as safe versus a man being walking through, like how many, how much of this do we, have we had to concede ourselves in order to essentially adapt and live? But, you know, besides the fact, like, I think that that affects women of color immediately. I mean, I think that that's the whole point, right? Is that and I think that's the first one relationship building is so important to women of color, especially because not having a community that understands you and like listens to you is like pivotal to your own well being and confidence. And if you're not comfortable with explaining or saying something that might be considered against the grain, especially in a very certain specific look idea of development, what it operates, then you can have a really hard time and it really, um, so it, I think it definitely affects it. And I wonder about the future of development in that way too, like how much of it will change. Absolutely. Thank you so much for attempting this very jumbled question and for such great insight on it. All right, well, uh, and with that, <laughs> um, I just wanna say, Anna, Kiana, Monica, it's been so fun talking. Um, I wish we actually did this more often. Um, because I have learned a lot and I think there are a lot of people a lot of listeners out there that will really enjoy our conversation so thank you for um, doing this I will uh, you know before we close completely despite we don't have any guests today I think we should still play a quick round of wheel of questions right like are you are you guys up for it yeah okay cool 
Okay. <laughs> Here we go. So the question is, who or what is your biggest inspiration? <laughs> A very cliche answer, but my parents, I would say, are my biggest inspiration. Uh, just all the women that have come before me, and particularly Michelle Obama, probably is really up there. Yeah, I agree. I think at the risk of sounding a bit too cliche, I was going to say just the people that surround me, notably the women that have allowed me to a like see things I wasn't able to see before, maybe alone, um, and b that have helped me to get to where I am, which is nowhere special, but <laughs> it's just like it's a starting point. What about you, Anna? For me, I guess my biggest inspiration at the moment are all the chefs from Chef's Table um, because they are extremely innovative and creative and extremely witty. Okay, maybe this is just because I love food. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, definitely. On that note, thank you to the team for joining us today for this Red Table episode on race in academia, our perspectives, I guess, as MSc students. To everyone at home, thank you again for tuning in and supporting Can You Hear Us tirelessly. <laughs> my name is Monica. And my name is Madeira. And we will see you all next time amidst all the dissertation rush, hopefully. Quickly, before we leave, we just wanted to let you know that the Can You Hear Us team hopes to be back in September with the theme of activism. Until then, wishing everyone good luck in their dissertations. Bye. We would like to thank all of our participants today for coming on, as well as the LSE Department of International Development for its support, especially the LSE ID Communications and Event Manager, Ms. Deepa Patel, for all her help in promoting and distributing the episodes as well as Miss Anna Dalton. Finally, to our team for re researching, recording, and editing this episode. Our music is provided as always by the Soundbank and our logo created by, by Gorka Abad. See you all next time. Bye.